there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to Nippon Trading International's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis of realestate.jp. He's a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families who are looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for over two decades now. And for about half of that time, he's been buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in Tokyo on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So he's got dedicated loan officers in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts Panel Sessions which means that you're already aware of the fact that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area, and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, Drop him a line on sales at realestate.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, it's that time of the year again. Hope you're as excited as I am. Towards the end of January to the middle of February is when we do two very special episodes every year. Our annual summary, which will happen in a few episodes time. And this one, which is our yearly recap of your favorite episodes of the past year. So each of these 10 episodes, which we'll be playing a short segment of, uh, have been listened to and downloaded thousands of times, and they represent the most popular content on the Japan Real Estate Podcast and the YouTube channel in 2023. Now, they range in topics and style, which to us demonstrates just how diverse our subscribers are, but they all have one thing in common. They are jam-packed with useful information on topics that we hear on the podcast by popular request revisit and provide updates on a regular basis for. So without further ado, we will start at the bottom, which is by no means the bottom of the entire episode roster. Uh, we've clocked close to 70 episodes last year. Oh, but actually, before we go to the actual compilation, I just have to read this review to you. Uh, recently posted on the iTunes store by a listener from the US. It just made my day. Uh, so this one is by Huntington Beach Swimmer. And they write... I've been following the Japan Real Estate Podcast for some time now, and I find this to be one of the most interesting and informative Japan-based sites and podcasts of any sort, not just real estate. Ziv and his associates clearly know their market and business, and I always enjoy their talks together about all things related to real estate in Japan. Ziv selects some amazing guests to the podcast, people and businesses demonstrating a wide range of real estate needs, interests, and services. But best of all is Ziv's consummate professionalism, really, and hosting skills as he's able to guide guests to the meat of the matter while also keeping things fun and human along the way. This is one of the few podcasts that I actually look for each week in my feed. Thank you, Ziv and team, for keeping it real, keeping it interesting, keeping it Japan and keeping it coming. Man, I, I wish you could all see how flushed I am at the moment, even though I have read this one a few times already, of course. Uh, we truly appreciate you, uh, folks. These kinds of reviews are what keeps us doing what we're doing, not to mention keeping us in business. Um, so again, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing the love and for your kind reviews. We're thrilled that you're finding value in the content that we put out. Okay, so for the top 10 episodes in ascending order, uh, number 10 on the list was our first chat with Richard, the young Tokyo-based entrepreneur 
who was um, picking my brain about the ins and outs of starting a real estate business in Japan. Here's a part of that conversation having to do with the scope or potential expansion of such businesses in Japan, required capital and barriers to entry. What do you think? What are your thoughts on the scope of the market? Like, uh, how much can you expand with this sort of business? And uh, what is the future looking like for this business? Um, well, Japan is the world's second biggest property market. It's uh, mm -hmm. transactions, and I think capital-wise, it's second only to the USA. And it's also the only country in Asia where land is freehold for non-resident uh, buyers, or at least th there's no limitations of any sort on non-resident buyers. Like Australia is also freehold, for example, but um, foreigners can only buy brand new off-the-plan development properties, right? They cannot buy a secondhand property that's got a tenant in it already, for example. So Japan is the only country in Asia, in Asia Pacific, the only country in Asia Pacific that doesn't have any limitations on foreign buyers. So considering the size of the market and the uh, transparency and, and the uh, liquidity of the market, I see it as, uh, I'd say, unless the population really shrinks beyond a certain point, I'd say it's an endless scope. I mean, definitely for a small company like ours, there's there's a lot of room to expand, yeah. So, uh, I really want to learn more about uh, this particular industry and like what are the scope, especially let's say you're, when you're starting up, what is the capital requirement for you to start up uh, such a business? And uh, what are the entry uh, barriers to entry for uh, people who are uh, already living in Japan, but are maybe foreigners? Um, well, financially, it doesn't cost that much to set up a business. So assuming that you're going to bootstrap it and, you know, the first few years or the first few months at least work from home and, you know, minimize your expenses, then all you need to pay is usually... Um, about 150 or 200,000 yen to set up the company. And then annually for accounting and bookkeeping, uh, the minimum corporate tax, depending on which city you set up, but the minimum corporate tax that you'll have to pay, even if you haven't made any profits, is going to be uh, about 100,000 yen. And then your accounting and bookkeeping for a commercial entity like a company would cost you every year, depending on the accountant and how fluent in English they are. But let's say about 150, 200,000 yen at a minimum, right? So the financial barrier to entry aside from the setup cost is, can you afford to pay three, 4,000 bucks a year in corporate maintenance, even if you're not making any money, right? If you want to like have the business license for our like, business manager visa for CSA, you need to have like an address for your business, right? Oh, sorry, you. I thought you said you're living in Japan. I am living in Japan, but like uh, you cannot declare your address or your residency as your business address, no? Um, well, that's if you need a visa. If you've already got a visa and you're already living in Japan, then nobody cares where your office is. It can be your mm -hmm. home. See, is there a need for like, let's say, a Japanese partner for uh, legal legal reasons? Say, like legally, example, no. Legally, no, but that's the to, to answer the other part of your question about the uh, barriers to entry, you're probably going to find that because if you're working in Japan's real estate market, even if your customers are all foreigners, um, the, the third parties that you're going to be dealing with on a regular basis are, of course, Japanese companies, Japanese sellers, um, Japanese organizations, and you'll 
probably find that a lot of them will be um, quite reluctant to work with a foreigner, even if you're very fluent in Japanese. So I would very much advise to have a Japanese partner who can handle um, at least the initial contact with any new company or new person that you want to be working with, right? So in our case, for example, once we've had a meeting with a particular realtor and we've done a a deal or two with them, then I can call them up and say, hey, I got a customer coming. Can you meet us and take us to see some properties and stuff like that? So they know me. They already know that, you know, my, my Japanese is not very proper. It's very casual. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't dress or act or behave in exactly the way that they would expect me to. And it's fine because they already know who we are. But if I was to try and make the initial contact in the initial meeting and show up the way I am as a foreigner in a meeting for the first time with the and, and the real estate industry is quite old school in Japan as well. It's not exactly cutting edge technology and, um, you know, international minded and so forth. So at least for the first contact with the Japanese entity, it's always good if that's conducted by a native Japanese person who can speak proper Keigo and everything. So I, I would definitely advise to get a Japanese partner. Yeah. Great conversation there. We've since had a follow-up conversation with Richard where we dive deeper into his specific business plan, uh, which was also quite interesting. You can find links to both episodes, of course, as well as all of the other ones that we'll be paying segments of today in this episode's show notes. All right, so on to number nine. Uh, this was a JREP session, our Japan Real Estate Experts panel. And this one in particular featured Emil Gorgis, one of our panel members, schooling our listeners on the requirements for a home mortgage in Japan. So we can actually submit loans, um, loan applications on the client's behalf. So the client will, you know, we get all the information from the client, get the, the client to fill out all the documents, and then we present it to the, the bank. We we fax it to the bank, actually. Uh, so <laughs> You still do, do you? Oh, my God, the amount of faxes I do. Uh, like every, every, yeah, every house viewing, if I want to schedule a viewing, I need to fax my business card to to them i spend about two thousand yen a month on online fax portals yeah. but yeah. yeah um so anyway so uh yeah so we had one client yeah so we, we do that so anything about finance questions you have like i do for as a foreigner in japan i do that very very frequently one of the big ones that comes up in terms of requirements for a foreigner to get financing is that you need to have permanent residency Okay. And for the most part, that's true. In order to get 100% financing, yes, you need permanent residency quite frequently. There are situations where you do not, though. Um, one of the common ones where you don't need permanent residency is if your spouse is, is a Japanese um, citizen or a permanent resident holder. Uh, that And that's kind of well known as well. But when both um, the both the spouses are... Uh, not permanent residents. So you have a straight up foreign couple. Um, in this case, we did like this two uh, European um, family. So two Europeans, they wanted to buy a house. And generally the requirement is 20% deposit. The bank won't give a non-permanent resident holder a 100% financing. Um, you can still get great financing, but it's at 20% deposit. However, um, if you meet certain criteria, some banks can be a little bit more flexible with, like they can accept you as for 100% financing. So with this couple, they'd been in Japan for five years, um, been employed at the same company, like both the husband and wife have been working. Uh, you need to be working at least three years in the same company 
And you can't be on a one-year visa. It needs to be at least three or five-year visa. Um, you have to be married. Okay. Uh, and another condition is you need to be in the same re rental property, whatever you're, wherever you're currently living. You, you need to have been in the same property for at least three years. Okay. They want signs of stability. If they're going to give you 100% yeah. financing, they don't want indications that you can just sort of move willy-nilly, um, you know, maybe accept a job offer offer overseas um, quite easily. So we got all these conditions met and we were able to get them um, the full 100% property value financing. The property was uh, 92 million yen. So it's like, you know, almost like 900,000 US, mm. well, uh, much less now because of the exchange rate, but about that um, for a brand new property in Shinagawa ward, Shinagawa Ku. Um, Who was the brand lender? What did you end up going with? Mm. With us, Mitsui uh, Sumitomo. Okay. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you've mentioned um, you've mentioned that even if you're not residents and you don't meet this full criteria, they will give you 80%. In what what kind of profile do you need to have to qualify for that? Love, the normal non-PR in um, homeowner launch. Um, you usually it's like. Uh, look, you need to be employed. You need to meet all the. You need to meet all the like long-term employment requirements. Um, you don't need to be married or anything like. So generally, if you can get a loan, like if you have the right employment situation um, to get a loan as a permanent resident or as a Japanese citizen, right? So generally working, you know, at least a year, right? But say two or three years at the same company, um, and it's a, a good company, and you're not the business owner, you're just an employee. Uh, along those lines, then you can get, generally, if you have permanent residency, you get 80%, 100% uh, financing. If you don't have permanent residency, they will want 20% deposit. So you can get 80% financing. But do you need to show some signs of heading towards a PR? Or do you need to show that you've got like a future in Japan? That you, Like, how do you show that you're planning to um, to stick with it? Uh, you don't. That's why they want twenty percent deposit. Because if you because if you put in twenty percent, you're not just going to leave and bail on the loan. You've got too much skin in the game. Um, if you put in, if they, that's why they don't want to give you one hundred percent financing, because you haven't clearly expressed, proven that you are stable in the country and that you're long term. Permanent residency indicates that the Japanese Japanese government has done their level of screening and has accepted you that you're going to live here permanently, right? Um, and that's why they're okay giving you 100% financing, right? Because you've already been screened by the Japanese government. But the um, fact that you but, can even get 80% to somebody who, according to what you're saying, somebody who could have just moved here a year ago or two years ago has, you know, is working at a Japanese company on a employment visa, basically, sponsored mm -hmm. or not sponsored. And um, that's enough for them to give you 80%. That's more than I knew. So that this is a uh, good information. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, think of it the other way. You're, you're giving 20% commitment. That's, that's, that's why they know you're not going to leave. You Emil Gorgi's folks. And as we always say at the start of the podcast, he's super generous with his time, always happy to dish out advice. So do feel free to reach out to him on sales at realestate.jp. If you too want to pick his brain about anything. So on to the next episode, number eight on the top hits chart here on the Japan Real Estate Podcast. And this one is all about uh, one of my favorite topics, Fukuoka City, where we live and operate from. This was a conversation with a savvy buyer from Singapore who's also familiar with the city and is looking for both a family 
and holiday home as well as for investment properties here he wanted to find out about the property scene here in Fukuoka city here's a snippet from our chat discussing property prices in the city and market fundamentals yeah so my agenda is uh primarily to find uh, a sustainable unit uh, in Fukuoka. Um, my concerns um, are kind of broad. So one is uh, I need uh, a single unit that is uh, above 100 square meters built up area. So when you say unit, does it ha need to be a condo unit or a house? It or can more? be either one. I mean, okay. location is key for me. Um, I have gone to see several units uh, in the area where I live, which is, you know, a very nice area in terms of it's about 10 to 15 minutes walking distance uh, from Hakata Station and about 25 minutes from Tenjin Station. So I'm kind of okay. like right in between, um, but it's a rental unit. Um, I've gone to see um, there's a property company called um, uh, several property companies one of them is called show flat or or, or something like that uh or sh um yeah. open house yeah it's called open house okay uh, it, it's uh, i think a large property company what they do is they buy individual derelict homes uh so they buy the land and then they break it up into two units and then they build uh, two three-story walk-up units right so okay. these units are just way too small. I mean, you're talking about uh, four bedrooms, uh, uh, 85 square meters, uh, three floors. It's, uh, yeah, it's not sustainable. So I'm looking for something that is livable, comfortable. These floors, you'll be running up and down all day long. Oh, yeah. And and it's it's dangerous and not sustainable. As you get older, uh, it doesn't become a, a livable asset. Or drunk, <laughs> I can imagine. Well. <laughs> You know, booze is cheap in Japan, so yeah. yeah, that happens a lot. Now, if you've been following this podcast for a while, and in particular our JREP sessions, you're probably more than familiar with Blanca Kobayashi of Arc Reform. They're a bilingual renovation company serving clients in the Kanagawa and Kanto area, so Tokyo, Chiba, Saitama, Kawasaki, Yokohama. They can handle simple, small-scale projects as well as full house renovations, and they will work with you on the perfect design for your dream family home. But not only homes, Arc Reform also handle commercial property renovations, offices, restaurants, bars, shops, you name it, from traditional classics to the latest trends in interior design and renovations. So you want to email them for a free consultation and quote at info at arcreform.com. That's A-R-K reform, all one word, dot com, and give your home or commercial space the love and care that it deserves. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's my first thing, right? How do I find a suitable place that is above 100 square meters uh, of livable space. To right? purchase or to rent? To purchase. And you're buying in cash, right? Yeah. Also, all, all property companies would be happy to sell a property to you in cash. The problem might be the cultural differences where somebody like us comes in, but the properties are out there. It's not like it's hard to find. Question is, what's your budget? I mean, ideally, um, I would like to stick to half a million. Um, if I'm forced to go above that, I don't um, think you would be in Fukuoka. But um, yeah. I mean, if you're buying in, you know, right on Momochi Beach in those towers, then maybe. But otherwise, yeah, it shouldn't be an issue. My friend just bought a 
I think brand new one that's about the type you're describing in Island City. Are you familiar with Island City? It's like a big residential development near Kyudai, one of the Kyudai campuses in Igashiku. Um, and there, I mean, that, but, but he bought serious, luxurious tower living kind of thing. And even that, what I think about 300,000 brand new. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So in the center of the city, if it's brand new, maybe half a million, but you're not looking for brand new, are you? Um, it doesn't need to be brand new. So my assumption is that brand new um, is that there is capital, significant capital, significant capital depreciation. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's from a tax perspective. It doesn't actually mean that the property is um, no longer serviceable or that that market price will be very low. The tax depreciation that you're talking about is from a tax perspective only. The The prices tend to hold regardless of that. Uh, so I missed. Yeah. yeah, so I'm saying the capital depreciation that you're describing is related to tax tables. In practice, if you're talking about market price, um, that doesn't really correspond with the depreciation life cycle. That's a completely different dynamic that drives those two. Hmm. So what, what I've noticed is that, you know, uh, two compounds facing each other, you know, equivalent square footage or square meters. Um, one that is 30 years old is going for 350,000 USD. And the one that's opposite, that's seven or eight years old, is going for five hundred thousand USD. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that you know I'm not getting a foreigner price because you know my wife and is Japanese. No, uh, it's not a foreign price. Yeah. So I am I I I've kind of um, come to this conclusion. Yeah, they, they do go down in they do go down in value, but it's not because of the tax depreciation. They go down in value because as the building gets older, um, maintenance costs start building up, and then the if you're an owner occupier, the amount that you have to pay every month is increased, and if you're a landlord leasing the place out, then obviously if you're paying more monthly fees, then that reduces your yield. That's the reason the prices are decreasing. It's not re directly related to tax depreciation. So if you look, for example. We've got some, we usually don't deal with anything this old, but when we started, which was already 11 years ago, we did ha help a couple of customers buy in central Hakata properties that were built in 1970 something, I think. So 40, close to 50 years now. Um, they've actually doubled in price since we bought them, right? So first customer bought 11 years ago at um let's say two million yen next customer who buys their 11 years later is buying it for five million yen right um obviously the trend of fukuoka becoming an attractive destination and prices going up trumps anything to do with depreciation if and when that happens right so don't, don't take depreciation as a market price uh, reflection take it as a tax a tax matter so mm -hmm. if you want to claim depreciation on your properties then you might want to get something that's let's say between 10 to 30 years if you want to purchase something from a tax perspective that's already officially depreciated by something older but market prices will not be driven by that or at least not by that alone and the other factors that drive market uh, market trends are usually stronger than that hmm.
Understood. Understood. Um, I mean, very, very good insights, right? As you but know, putting, putting all that aside, buying something that's 30 years and older does mean that you'll very quickly be paying a lot more on a monthly basis for maintenance and reserve funds. Fukuoka City, best city I've ever uh, personally lived in, hands down, as I keep saying. And if you don't believe me, it's high time you came for a visit. What are you waiting for? The borders are open. Flights are cheap. Come on down. All right. Number seven. This one's a conversation with a really lovely couple from the U.S., who are in the market for their very first investment property in Japan. Here's a segment of our conversation explaining the major differences between various property profiles and the advantages and disadvantages of each. Okay, and then what, what sort of property were you thinking of buying? Okay, so, all right, so I have notes here. So, so, I, I, so I definitely want a mansion. It, it, it seems like the right move for us. And and I, I think on your opening presentation, you said affordability, high yielding investment. And, and that that sentence really <laughs> resonated with me. So so I would like I think we would want to mention that. And I don't think we want a family. Um, well, oh, wait, but I, I'm still lost. Are we talking investment property or investment property? Got, investment. investment property. OK, OK. okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Yep. Investment property. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, because I think we're still going to be living in the States for quite a while. Well, family family sized mansion units, um, they'll cost more to renovate and repair between tenants just because they're bigger. So then there's more to the interior that needs to be done between tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you happen to get a good family tenant, they'll stay in place for many, many years and they'll take very good care of the property as opposed to a single, which... I mean, the, they, the turnover is higher with the singles or the couples. And also, if it's an elderly single, they don't always take really good care of the property. Not not by being malicious or damaging, just, you know, keeping the windows closed and always smoking inside, especially if it's a man. So th- there's advantages to bigger family-sized units, but the yield will be lower because of the uh, higher maintenance between tenants and because of the fact that as they get bigger, the price goes up, but the rent doesn't go up as much. So they will yield less, um, but they're safer and stabler. So there's something to be said. Oh, okay. Because I, I guess when I was listening to the presentation, I I thought you said that it's harder to fill them um, when they do leave. Yes, whereas... but they stay, but they stay for a longer time. Okay, so that's uh, okay. It takes a bit longer to fill them in, but they do stay. I mean, it takes a few months extra to fill in a family size unit but they stay in place for a few years extra so well if in your expertise if it is more stable (laughs) that's what i'm gonna go for so basically my career i'm a programmer and i teach um actually two jobs now so i'm I'm, I'm looking for something that requires minimum (laughs) intervention by me yeah so as passive as they come yeah yes Exactly. So I'm looking for something safe, high yielding. Um, Look, better quality tenants and better quality properties are less headache and less um, hands on. Mm -hmm. But you what you sacrifice is the yield. You you get lower yield for that. And I'm fine with that for the first property. Um, If I can sleep good at night. (laughs) <laughs> I'm fine with a, a lower yield. Uh, it's it's Japan. You'll sleep good at night. It's not like it's going to be <laughs> yeah. drug labs and squatters. I know. 
<laughs> the United States has evictions. And <laughs> I know what it's like in the U.S. No, none of that happens here. So you'll sleep well. I mean, the only headaches you might have is um, if uh, and you know a unit stays vacant for a little bit longer, or if you got a single elderly tenant. The worst headache is if they die in the property. Right? That can sometimes happen in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but insurance is pretty good for those cases. So headaches in the sense of you'll have to constantly be on the phone and wonder what's happening. That's not going to happen in Japan. Wonderful. Wonderful. I want a predictable, as, as predictable as it can be. That's one of the main reasons people come here is the stability and quiet of it all. Yeah. So, Okay, so that one started to dig in a bit deeper into the realities of property investment here in the land of the rising sun. And we do have quite a few more popular episodes on the list that we'll get to uh, on this topic in a while. But the next one, number six in the list of your favorite episodes this year, is about both of your favorite topics. Again, property investments and holiday home purchases. And this was an audio-only chat with a new client who was trying to see how he could fit both holiday home and investment property into a budget of about 200,000 US dollars. Here's a part of our conversation. We have one customer who recently purchased something similar to what you're describing for, I think, 12 or 13 million yen. Um, But that's the rarity rather than the norm. So I would assume that you're going to be using um, at least 15, 16 million yen of the budget towards the holiday property. I see. Which then leaves us with up to about 10 million yen for the investment property. But I would maybe, if the plan is definitely to get both, I would maybe start with the holiday property because that's going to be the more challenging one budget-wise. And then see what's left over once you've identified the kind of property that you want to purchase, then see what's left over for investment. So investment-wise, we can we can find a profitable studio or one bedroom apartment, not a house. I wouldn't advise on houses as investment properties in Japan anyway, for the same reason. So condo unit, um, let's call it up to one bedroom plus dining kitchen, or sometimes it's going to be just a studio. Um, we can find them for as cheap as maybe three and a half, four million yen in attractive locations. But obviously the more we can put into it, um, the better the location will be, the newer the building would be, and then the tenant profile is a bit better too. Again, there's no ghettos in Japan, but it's still better to get um, a young professional as opposed to an elderly guy who smokes in the property and dies there, right? Yeah, so maybe we should start with looking at holiday homes just to give you an idea of what prices are like. I'm assuming you've already searched on yourself a little bit as well. I have. Um... I've been actually I've been focusing on the investment property more so than holiday home. Okay. Uh, for my own sort of uh, research. Um, yeah, I mean I understand you know um, I'm I'm kind of leaning to think about the other thinking about it the other way is that you know the the holiday home is almost a nice to have. Uh, nice to have at yeah. this point. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and you know um, if we want to postpone have you know that purchase say for another year or so okay well I mean if you've got an investment property that kind of pays for your trips to Japan anyway right right exactly (laughs) so yeah and you can stay wherever you want using those proceeds so we can definitely start with that if that's okay with you well in that case I would say that the sweet spot um, I mean you could go for central Tokyo and central Osaka if you wanted to that budget would fit one property in those locations 
um, but yield is going to be quite low in Tokyo if we get three and a half we're happy and central Osaka maybe four four and a bit and net yeah. net before tax just so we're on the same page yeah so that's that is fairly low um, I was thinking you know again think like you said if you factor in taxes and and, and the, um, the the monthly fees right um, mm. so uh, so I'm wondering again it's like but so what type of building is what that you know what would I get for that is it like a newer type newer building or is it a uh, or a high-rise building or a low-rise type of building? Um, so definitely not new. You're not going to get new in uh, most cities for this price. Um, it's going to be, and again, new is also not good yield-wise because the, the price to purchase rises a lot more sharply than the rental graph, right? So again, you, you're going to be looking at 2 3 4%. So the sweet spot for yield, but also not too old so that... Um, monthly fees don't start going through the roof and tenants still find it attractive, I would say is between 20 to 30 years of age. Mm -hmm. And then how central and how new within that scale depends on the city. So we could buy, I would say the price would probably be, depending on the city, in most attractive locations would be between 4 to 12 million yen or maybe call it 6 to 12 million yen I'd be super happy with because the 4 million ones mean smaller cities and older buildings. Um, so yeah, 6, six to or 11 or 12 million yen will probably get you a, a good investment property. And then if your total budget is that and you don't want to spend it, depending on the city, you could split it into two if you are keeping the 25 million just for investment. All right, moving right along and further down into the rabbit hole of investment, number five on our list is a conversation with a new client who wants to understand the differences between property investment here in Japan as opposed to Europe, where he's from, and other countries around the world. In this portion of the chat, we're talking about offers, submitting offers, due diligence, and foreign tire kickers, or at least uh, how these are perceived in Japan, how old should investment properties be upon purchase and why, and other factors that make uh, for attractive investment profiles, what information is available and what is not available at various stages of the property purchase and ownership. Let's say we find a property where you say, okay, this makes sense. It's a location-wise, it's okay. It's within a station. It is somewhere at a, at a larger city. Um, and let's say it has a certain amount of value that it's, it's written off for, or it's, it's, it's published for. Let's, let's say just an example now, six, let's say 60 million uh, or 6 million yen as an example now. Yeah. Um, and let's say we, we say, okay, we want to, we want to uh, you know, make an official offer for this one. Because my understanding uh, in, in Japan normally is like from my business background, right? It's like if you start approaching somebody seriously about something, like asking for an inquiry or so, I mean, normally at that point it gets quite serious. I mean, like it's it's differently than in Europe, right? Where you can just say, yeah. oh, please give me a, uh, yeah. I want to offer this or make a letter of Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that you recognize that because that's one of the main points we have to educate new customers about. Um, in the West, we're very used to, you know, shooting in all directions, submitting offers on five, six properties, and then just going ahead with the one we like the most. But if we do that in Japan, that agent is not going to work with us again. It's just not done here. So what we would need to do is get our research results, prioritize them to see which one, on paper at least, which one looks the most attractive and start tackling them one by one. So we go with the first one, we make inquiries. Once we submit an offer, it's expected, it's not legally binding, but it's expected that 
if nothing turns up during due diligence, we're going to move forward with the deal. We're not going to just pull back because we changed our mind. Um, but the due diligence information is only going to usually is only going to be available post offer the agents. It's a very fast market here. So the agents and the sellers don't go out of the way to start collecting documents for tire kickers. And um, once they have an offer, they'll start providing um, if the unit is tenanted, they'll provide tenant information, the building renovation history, the total reserve funds. And then we look at all of that information and we decide if we're moving forward or pulling back or maybe amending the offer price, for example, if there's a higher risk factor. Right. So we can pull the offer back because of that due diligence info, but not because just we had a change of heart. And then once we sign the contract, pay the 10% deposit, that's when it becomes legally binding. Okay. Okay. So from that point onwards, it's basically like a legal binding contract. And then it will run down the road of course, of course getting all the legal things in place and then to doing the transfer. Whatever right. you used to from any other country. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely so Singapore and Germany. It's very similar. Sorry. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but that means also basically for the due diligence, we don't have any documents up to the point when we make an offer. That means that we have to do a bit of the, let's say, research. Uh, of, I mean, basically, it's like the agent is, is recommending, of course, but let's say they will, of course, look into and, and sort out already from the feeling, gut feeling also, okay, this one might not be anything because, you know, it's maybe too old or, you know, we're usually not we're usually not going to get to the offer stage if something is too old. So the properties that we'll research for you will be, you know, we like to look at properties up to 30 years of age, not beyond that, because that's the age when building fees tend to rise up more sharply because the building requires more maintenance. And that's also when developers start sniffing around to see if they can convince everyone to sell cheaply. So we'd like to give you at least five, six years of, of buy and hold before that happens. So we'll normally aim for properties 30 years or younger, unless it's a phenomenal location and we're sure that we're going to get a good offer when it's time to sell, right? Otherwise, yeah, 30 years and younger, we'll want to see it within 10 minutes, uh, walking distance to a train or subway station, whatever that city has for transport. Um, the only exception would be maybe if it's a major station like Tokyo Station or Hakata Station, Nagoya Station, then maybe 15 minutes is also okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then... I think even, even at that station, I mean, if you're 15 minutes away from Hakata, you're being at, at one subway station anyway. Right? Yeah, because exactly. Hakata, <laughs> There's like probably going to be an... No, I mean, sometimes you get this one little spot in the other suburb that's actually no other station, but still 15 minutes walk to Hakata Station is good for any tenant. Yeah. And then um, the other things that we can see on paper, I mean, aside from just having a look at the building, generally we can see if, you know, it looks like at least the exterior is reasonably well maintained. If the property is tenanted, we're not going to have any interior photos. So Japanese tenancy laws uh, prohibit anyone from entering a tenanted unit. There's no periodical inspections or you don't enter unless the tenant asks for maintenance or something. Okay. So we can go for vacant units. Uh, if you prefer, if the location is very attractive, it should be easy to find a tenant for them. The advantage there is that you're getting a property that was just recently renovated the interior. Uh -huh. um, but the downside is, of course, you're buying into expenses as opposed to buying straight into income because you still have to pay your building fees for a few months until you find a tenant, right? 
Now, at number four, and this annual episode never fails to make it to the top 10, is our annual property market summary for 2022, uh, published, of course, in 2023. In this segment, we discuss the residual effects of the pandemic at its tail end on Japan's property market, as well as new tax breaks for buyers, demand from foreign investors, and various opportunities that are available in various sectors in the market. So then what about the pandemic trend of working from home? Well, similar to the rest of the world, a lot of people who can do prefer to work from home now and companies in Japan as well, some of them begrudgingly, obviously, but they are trying to accommodate staff if and when they can in the same way they've been doing in the last three years. So that means leasing smaller satellite offices near the suburbs where people live finding other flexible arrangements for them. That's all still going on. Uh, Yahoo Japan, for instance, now boasts 90% remote work, they say, and they allow employees to log in from anywhere in Japan. And NTT as well, Japan's biggest telco, moved some of its head office functions to Gunma Prefecture and Kyoto. So while Tokyo is not really losing any significant population just yet, the trend of relocating to smaller cities which has started during the pandemic, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And we're probably going to see that reflected in the next uh, population census results in 2025, when we will actually see what the years of the pandemic have done to these migration trends domestically. Um, According to a recent trend, though, just under 30% of employment in Japan is now conducted remotely. And 80% of those who were interviewed um, did survey saying that they wish to continue this working style. So teleworking is definitely here to stay in Japan as well, with all that that entails. So the stuff that we've been discussing in the last three years, larger home office, um, bigger floor plans, more infrastructures in smaller suburbs and towns to enable work from home. And who knows, hopefully maybe even some rural rejuvenation. We'll see how that goes. Now, other developments from last year. The Ministry of Land and Infrastructures has announced some significant tax breaks for mortgages and gift-slash-inheritance tax, which were levied on personal homes. And that is hopefully going to encourage more families to buy their first homes, particularly the ones with middle-class incomes, and maybe stimulate residential investments a little bit, improve the quality of housing stock. We'll see how that one plays out as well, but definitely an interesting initiative. On the residential front, uh, super strong demand from foreign institutional investors who have now priced out uh, local REITs, apparently, Japanese Real Estate Investment Trusts. The old um, Tokyo and Osaka yields are good enough for us mantra still holds true for institutional investors. So again, things are looking good for this sector as well in 2023. The Bank of Japan's April announcement of the coming year's economic policy is of interest, um, as is the progress of the recovering tourist industry, which we've mentioned. But all in all, plenty of good opportunities to be had in Japan, similar to previous years. And as usual, diversifying any portfolio with some safe and stable assets that are also geographical hedge, never a bad idea for anyone. And Japan does tick most of these boxes for a large number of buyers and will most likely continue to do that. All right, we're here. Your top three episodes of 2023. These are the ones that you viewed, liked and shared the most last year. And to kick the top three off, this one is another JREP session in which we welcome one of our longtime listeners and fans to the podcast to have some questions asked and answered live by the panel. His first and probably most interesting question, which we've tried to answer to the best of our ability, was related to Japan's declining population. Here's that part of the conversation. All right, I'll start with question one here. Uh, Both Japan's low birth rate and 
aging population seem like they'll have a, a negative impact on real estate demand in the future. How should investors view this problem and what steps uh, are Japan taking to alleviate this impending population crisis? Okay, well, investment-wise, let, let's leave the uh, last part of the uh, the last question out of it because I have no idea what Japan is doing about it personally. Does anybody else know what Japan is doing about the uh, population decline? Any they, policies? Uh, they're doing a bunch of a bunch of stuff, but none of it. It's all yeah. misaligned with the needs. So yeah, they are trying to encourage right now like uh, you know giving little extra uh, money here and there for families with children <laughs> they are trying to um let help. me comment on that that's you're just talking about <laughs> the end per kid thing emil doesn't like it when we go off topic but th this is important man <laughs> no 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 it's a very relevant question right um, i just i it's not my expertise to speak to it yeah so they're blanca yeah. you're talking about the million yen per per kid thing no even even like for example uh, they are like I don't know how Tokyo, but but Tokyo is also encouraging families. They are giving them a little extra money here and there if you apply. We now even got a paper, something like that. They will give us an extra incentive, um, like a support for gas costs. Having a child, basically. And yeah, they've, they've also said that they'll like alleviate um, or reduce or maybe eliminate um, what student debt, which I didn't even know was that big of an issue in, in Japan <laughs> in the first place. It's not a big I don't think it's a big issue because most families are very uh, used to having uh, having a savings account for children's studies. Mm -hmm. And it's so common here. Most families really does have it. Either the parents pay for it or the grandparents pay for it. Now, here's some big news for anyone interested in Akia, the abandoned vacant homes that are abundant all around Japan for very attractive purchase prices. Akia Mart, our latest sponsor, is a recently founded online search and discovery tool for Japanese real estate. Its user interface will be very familiar to users of Zillow or Redfin. The platform essentially scouts the internet for property listings, translates them into English and displays prices in US dollars, all in one place and with a dynamic map interface that makes browsing, finding and shortlisting your favorite properties a piece of cake which any of you have been struggling with the dozens, if not hundreds, of Japanese property websites that are available online and their very clunky interface will probably find a real blessing. They've got already over half a million listings on the platform and the database is expanding daily, ranging from abandoned rural homes to luxury urban properties. Akia Mart makes it easy to find your dream home in Japan, regardless of your budget. Now, while the platform is essentially free for use, here's an exclusive offer for listeners of the podcast. You can use the promo code NTI to receive $5 off Akia Mart Pro. The subscription will unlock a bunch of very attractive features for you, including unrestricted access to the entire nationwide property database and a whole range of filters, which will help power charge your search for that elusive perfect home and make it even easier. So hop over to akia-mart.com, that's A-K-I-Y-A-M-A-R-T, akia-mart.com, and kick off your search today. All right. A lot of children's expenses in Japan is still covered by the grandparents, which is which is just crazy to me, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But also uh, what I've heard now and that, that it's kind of ridiculous, but still what it is, is they are trying to encourage mothers or support mothers 
to kind of get an extra education or like, uh, you know, requalify during their child stay so they can actually go back to work because the biggest issue, the generations younger than us, I think, is having is that the women are not really supported to go back to work and then they will tell them that their experience is outdated because they were home for so long. This I wonder if education will actually change anything, though. I know some very highly educated women in Japan that have just abandoned any hope of a career, and it's not because of lack of education. It was oh. a lot of, but but I think yes, like the, the sorry to to cycle back to your question, yeah. Michael. The, to, a, um, but they are trying, but they are trying from a little bit of a, <clears throat> from the wrong places. So we still don't know. We still don't know where this is gonna go. I believe this to you. I mean, it has to be. To address it, really, it has to be either an increase in birth rate or an increase in immigration, right? There's no other way to right. battle a, a declining population. So that the policies the are kind of, I don't know, I'd call them half-hearted or maybe they're just, you know, out of ignorance on what would actually work. But let, let's assume that that's not going to happen. So what is happening and has been happening for the last, let's say, 10, 15 years is that the smaller townships and the smaller villages are declining in population, but a lot of that means that they are just conglomerating into the bigger metropolitan centers, right? So if you look at um, the big cities, Sapporo, Osaka, Tokyo, Nagoya, um, Yokohama, Fukuoka, they're all gaining in population. Um, I don't think it's organic anywhere except Fukuoka, maybe. So no, it's not, not actually people having more babies than people yeah, You're die. talking about it's just like the gut bit. Is, exactly. Is, right. But and, considering the size of the population in Japan, that's a trend that's going to keep the cities growing for at least another 10, 15 years as it runs its course. And that's really, for me as an investor, I think most of our clients as well, we don't think, I mean, obviously it's a long-term commitment and investment, but we don't think much beyond five or 10 years because everything changes, right? Policies, macro, <laughs> macroeconomic factors, microeconomic factors. We have no idea what's going to happen in five, ten years. There might be a policy in place. The trend of the population decline might reverse or slow down. It might not. But if we've got five or 10 years of increasing population, which means a stable tenant base, for me as an investor, that's enough. But I don't know if other people have other views on that. I'm going to add to that. So yeah, I agree. I agree sort of what you said, Ziv. Um, so as I've got three kids, so I think I'm I'm doing my my part for the population growth. Good at least. job, Emil. <laughs> but that said, the yeah, so you're you are right. I think though, in although right now the attempts the government are making seem to be not very successful. I think just last year was the lowest birth rate on record. Yeah, it was like eight hundred thousand or something. Yeah, 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 less than a million right yeah crazy uh, so it's it is it is very low in terms of birth rate japan as little uh, as little faith as i have then they're eventually going to have to start doing something they're doing something already but when it really becomes more and more of a real impact that's when you know they're going to have to do something more significant the big one which i feel they're trying to avoid is immigration yeah mm -hmm. right but they're not just going to dwindle away and just see this and eventually we're on a population of 20 million, 10 million, 10 million. Like that's something will happen before that to resolve it. Right. It's not just going to be a catastrophic decline and no one 
does anything. I feel something will get done. So that's why uh, for me, Kishinsan's the first one that's actually at least talking about it with any sense of distress that I've seen in a while, Prime Minister-wise, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I got so, I got the impression that Kishida had like just like there's like a knee jerk just like freak out kind of thing like oh my god we're not having any children like we're gonna die <laughs> we do I did I, I did see one one um uh one initiative which was to give dating like you know teaching teaching men how to have uh, be better daters or to have more romance so I thought that was quite amusing so that is Let's, interesting. I mean, like, going there is a whole that's a whole other podcast whole, that's beyond yeah. the scope of what we're talking socializing and yeah, yeah romant- mm. romanticizing is um, well, but yeah, I mean so like but back to the question right how does this affect real estate I mean exactly I was just about to bring it back yeah probably imagine what I'm gonna say with Akia right in rural areas is fact of the matter is they dropped the ball right and legally speaking anybody anywhere in the world can buy property and management is another issue we can talk about that later but the fact is that japan's kind of on sale and japan inc itself doesn't do <laughs> shit about it right yeah. and so from my perspective with the akia thing and the cheap ass abandoned stuff is Jesus Christ, come on over, like buy that and yeah. you can buy that and you can buy that and just buy it up, right? And that's that also potentially affects immigration as well. And and you see there are some, some people doing some interesting things and I don't know that we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but there is a very large international school. Actually, there's a few international schools that are, that are setting up in yep. slightly rural yes. areas and yep. then there is also like if you look at the big one which is harrow which basically brought up a whole big swath of land up in um uh morioka area like um, oh really i don't yeah, know and about they've, the op- they've opened up this school which is like very very high end um it's like nine million yen a year for full board and and um and tuition and they're really going after the the very high-end moneyed um asian billionaires um so coming in from china coming in from singapore and they're really trying to you know because the land was cheap up in um up in that uh, up in that oh, area yeah, Iwate is like up yeah. in Iwata it's Iwata is just dirt cheap but that what they've done is they've 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 brought a brand over they've brought a brand which has a very high um high international you know um you know association of like high quality education and they've put a product in in the middle of nowhere but they're mm-hmm. offering golf they're offering the kids can go skiing in their you know yeah, at their lunch times and and they're offering they're offering some <laughs> some very wealthy people a, a very good opportunity and they've done they've come in and done it for next to nothing so but investment you know, wise i mean those kind of projects whether it's a guest house or something more creative like matt was showing at the seminar last month yes um they're not passive investments right you can't passively invest for rental income in the japanese countryside you're always going to be hands-on right yeah 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 so here we go our second most popular episode this year is also one of the most important ones we've ever recorded this is an explainer video that we've recorded on behalf of the uh, cheap houses japan newsletter and instagram account Cheap Houses Japan is one of the most well-known and highest regarded English resources for foreigners interested in Japan's akia, which are vacant or abandoned homes that are often being sold very cheaply. 
Uh, Michael, who handpicks and collates the properties on the Cheap Houses Japan newsletter to his subscribers, has asked us to break down all aspects, the ins and outs of purchasing one of these properties. The bottom line being that people are unfortunately normally not aware of how complex, challenging and just different to what they're used to in their countries of origin the process is. This segment of the conversation relates particularly to the challenges involved, but the entire 15 minutes video or audio episode is highly recommended for anyone interested in this fascinating market. Again, we'll link to it in this episode show notes. If uh, there's any must view episodes in any of the ones we've sampled here, this is the one. So go watch or listen to it. You won't regret it. Super educational if you're interested in Akia, I'd say even eye opening. The challenges there are usually related to mismatched expectations on both ends. So the Japanese side, again, as discussed previously, are used to things going by the book. They're not used to people coming in, waving loads of cash, submitting multiple offers, and then deciding which one to go for. They're not even used to being asked too many questions and for too many terms and conditions to put into the contract. Usually, Property purchases in Japan are very straightforward. There's a listing, there's a price, you might slightly negotiate it, maybe 10-15%, maybe conduct a structural inspection, which is rare for these older, cheaper properties, and the deal is done. But foreigners who are coming into Japan are obviously used to a different mode of operation. In many cases, if they come into another country and they're a cash purchaser, they're going to be an army of real estate agents and available properties, and everybody wants to work with them. Everything moves very smoothly and quickly. The moment they submit an offer, it's accepted. Two days later, they can get the documents. It just doesn't work that way here. And the more rural and cheaper the property is, the more slow everything is going to take. The less motivated sellers are. In many cases, it's just a property that's been in the family for ages and it's the government pushing the seller to sell it. It's not going to be as smooth and as quick and as open arms as you'd expect it to be, whether in your country of residence or other countries that you purchased in, in the past. So we normally tell our customers, number one, to buckle in, it's gonna be a long haul. They might look at five, 10, 15, 20 different properties before they actually find the one that they're going to go ahead with. And even then, every stage of the process, again, the more rural, the cheaper the property, the more likely everything will take much longer Everything will be a lot more vague until we can clarify and put everything down in writing. Documents will be amended, re-amended, sent again. Documents will have to be reproduced. Everything will take much, much longer. So definitely not a good idea to send us a list of properties and say, I'm coming in two months and I want everything to be settled by then. It's just not going to happen. You need to evaluate the properties one by one, see how long the projected process is going to take and then start planning your first visit to the property. If you do it in advance, you're going to end up being frustrated and disappointed. And that's going to be the case if you expect things to move at the same pace or at the same smoothness that they do overseas. It just does not. Everything is by the book. Everything is legal. Everything will eventually happen, but it will take time and it's going to be more complicated and there's going to be much more fiddliness to it than you used to overseas. So again, buckle in, enjoy the ride. It's not going to be a fast process by any means. Okay, the moment you've all been waiting for the most popular episode on the Japan Real Estate Podcast and YouTube channel in 2023. Drumroll, please. So this one is a webinar that uh, Emil and I held for the alumni of Quantic Business School in Singapore. 
Um, we talked about a whole lot of topics in this session, which went on for almost two hours. This particular segment is all about choosing your investment location within Japan, the types of investors who are interested in buying here in Japan and why they choose the locations that they do, uh, as well as what happens when a property is demolished. So really interesting conversation, very educational. Again, I highly recommend to check out the entire episode if you haven't done so yet. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Um, next question is about recommended. If you have any spe specific recommendations on places to invest in in Japan, and specifically if you recommend Nagoya. Um, I think so. What we normally do when we're approached by a new client is we just try to understand. We so we try to base our location recommendation and the property profile recommendation as well. Um, based on the investor's profile. So everybody comes with different goals from different countries of origin, with different investment portfolios that they've got in various other sectors or countries or what have you. So we first try to get an idea of, for example, if somebody's running a portfolio that's relatively high risk, high reward, speculative, getting high percentage returns, but they're not really sure about capital retainment, then we'd probably direct them into diversifying into something a bit more safe and stable. Maybe they'd be happy with 4 or 5% in Fukuoka or Osaka or, or um, Nagoya or what have you, um, even if it's not super percentage, but it's nice and safe and stable income. Whereas people that have more blue chip stock portfolios that are you know just really growing steadily but are not generating high dividends then maybe they'd want to be more adventurous with their investment portfolio so it really depends on the investor and um, nagoya specifically um has not still not gone up in price as much as other locations in japan so it was it started on that track before covid when they put in the new shinkansen between tokyo and nagoya and they were clearing up a lot of old properties along the tracks and it looked like nagoya was kind of on a stellar path to uh, price growth but that's sort of petered off with COVID. So prices there are still quite attractive. Returns are higher than in other big cities, but the population is also a bit rougher around the edges. So Japan is still Japan. You don't have ghettos and crime labs and squatters and forced evictions, but if and when we do have payment issues or tenants that we, for some reason or another, are chronically late and we have to ask them to leave, then it does tend to happen a little bit more in Nagoya and a few other cities. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home-away-from-home home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, if that's still a thing, or if you just need somewhere quiet to get away from the world. They offer a variety of options for families, corporate relocations, or even if you're simply transitioning between homes in Tokyo. The properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They come with fast unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in. Fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but longer term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly in a Japanese business hotel. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home, with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, etc., you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. 
They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed Minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profit or a holiday home that you want to rent out when you're not using it via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth a visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at sales at realestate.jp. And now back to the podcast. Um, and for me, I'm focused more on Tokyo. The numbers are not as attractive um, in terms of rental yield as other cities. And then even within Tokyo, you know, if you're closer into center, you know, you'd be like in Yama, Nakameguro, Shibuya, Shinjuku area, basically the popular ones that you see in the travel books, like real downtown um, with great access and uh, in the heart of everything. Of course, they tend to be even, you know, more attractive to investors just because it's a nice area. So that kind of pushes up the capital value more than the rent, more than the rent increases. So that's why you get lower, lower returns for newer properties and better locations. And then when you look on a more sort of countrywide scale, that's why Tokyo has lower returns than than other regional uh, cities. Depending on your particular um, interest, if you think I just want to invest in Japan as a financial tool because you know I know it's it's generally safe and and the yen is pretty good, like pretty stable, government is stable, then yeah, you can choose some other you know other places. A lot of my clients they'll often have. Some kind of connection to Japan. Uh, maybe it's a Japanese spouse. Maybe they've lived here for a certain, you know, for several years. So they kind of know what they like already. And they, and often people buy what they know. So that's why, in my case, a lot of the clients are like, no, we've lived in Tokyo and we want to, um, so we want to maybe in the future be able to come back. So we want to buy in Tokyo. And within Tokyo, yeah, they want a nice kind of property. Um, but and they'll so they only really consider the the different returns based on different areas within sort of Tokyo and different ages of buildings, but they still want it to be quite central. Um, and I think one of the questions I saw before is, you know, is there a difference between the different? I think the most recent question between different wards. If you're in Shibuya ku or Edogawa ku or Musashinoshi, where where Kichijoji is or Setagayaku, yes, the further away you get, um, you know, like really central Tokyo, um, Azabu area. Um, uh, Shibuya Ward, Meguroku, um, within sort of that southwest, um, uh, western southwest uh, pocket around the Yamanote line, that's quite affluent. So they tend to be a bit more attractive. And then the further out you go within Tokyo, it gets a little bit less affluent, less attractive. Um, and so that means the rental yields are a little bit better. You know, if you want decent ones within Tokyo, then out to Hachioji, for example, you know, far out west, it's still Tokyo. But it really is the far end of sort of to, uh, you're getting out towards Tokyo. 
We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home-away-from-home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, if that's still a thing, or if you just need somewhere quiet to get away from the world. They offer a variety of options for families, corporate relocations, or even if you're simply transitioning between homes in Tokyo. The properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They come with fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in. Fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know. They're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but longer term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly in a Japanese business hotel. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home, with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, etc. You definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profit, or a holiday home that you want to rent out when you're not using it via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth a visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at sales at realestate.jp. And now back to the podcast. All right. Thank you. Um, and uh, jumping back on the depreciation topic in uh, practical terms, if a property where you have um, an apartment inside is demolished, uh, how does that work? So, how does how does that work depreciation wise? Or well, no. What what happens to your property? So you have a property, a mansion, and a, a small apartment building in in a in a in a in a in a bigger building, and that that is said to be demolished. Um, how do you exit the property and? Or what happens to your to your is that is it even possible that they demolish it without your okay do you get bought out do you get a new property or um yeah so in the end of the life cycle does something like that exist so it's rather the the question sort of i think it, the right phrasing for that question would be more along the lines of you know um how do they go about agreeing to tear down a building to begin with, and what happens? What is the process? So I believe it's about 80% of the owners need to agree. Yeah, exactly 80%. Yeah, they're working to change that to a lower percentage, but at the moment it's still 80%. Yeah, so 80% need to agree to tear it down. So that means that a lot of people like just are fed up with the building. It's old, it's run down, it's falling apart. So 80% is a lot of people that don't like the building that they're living in and are willing to tear it down. Okay. And then they have to pay to rebuild it. So it doesn't actually happen too commonly. And even once they agree, 
it's almost a seven to 10 year long process from when they agree to when it actually happens. Um, but again, it's complex. It's like, so where are the people going to move? How are they going to fund it? Where is the money even coming from? Rather, what would happen if it's an old building? And realistically, if when you're going to buy a property, it's probably not going to be close to that state. If we, as an investment or for your own home, it's not going to be at that kind of level that it needs to be sort of torn down in the next one to two decades. Um, but if you do happen to sort of be in that situation, well, then it's like, well, how are they going to fund it? Um, if you're not able to fund it, chances are that over 20% of the residents are not going to agree to it. Um, if they are, it could be because a developer has come in and said, look, your particular building allows like the zoning in this, we can actually build two or three times the size of it. So what we'll do is look, we'll let us get it and we'll give you a new property within this new build complex that we build. You get a brand new one and, and we'll give you a hotel or a place to a property to live in for the 12 to 24 months it takes to build this next building. And uh, you can get a new place and we as a developer will make our money through selling all the other properties. But realistically, I think you you won't be in a situation that the property you buy is going to get to that stage. Rather, what happens is the building just con continually gets maintained, right? Even now, the 60-year-old buildings, um, rather the opposite, if they tear them down, the new property they can build may not be as big or will be equal in size to what is already there. So it's not really worth paying all that just to redo it, you know, redo the same building and you have to move out for two years, what they'll rather do is just continuously maintain and take care of the existing building. What, what does often happen with these buildings that Emil was just describing is, um, so again, if you think about zoning regulations, they tend to get stricter over time. So in the past, there wasn't really much zoning regulations to speak of. And then they started saying, okay, well, the roads have to be this wide. This is a residential neighborhood. We need the spaces to be this much apart and so forth. So normally these days, zoning regulations for buildings that have been built decades ago are more strict. So it's not worth it for a developer to compensate, say, 100 unit owners if they're only going to be able to build a 20 or 30 unit block in that location. They're not going to give a unit or the equal compensation amount of a unit to each and every owner. So what they tend to do in these cases is, and that's another reason that we, for example, recommend not to go for buildings that are too old, is as the building reaches that 40-year mark again, the developers start sniffing around. They want to buy the plot, but they don't want to compensate that much. So they'll make... Um, They'll buy a few units in the building at normal market prices from some owners, and then that gives them voting rights on the owner union. And then they'll start pushing from within to convince owners to sell the building until they get to that 80%. And they've got, they, they take their time doing it too. If it's a good land plot, they'll take, in our case, well, they've done it to us. It's taken them six years, I think, that they were working on the owner union until they managed to get that 80%. And then they'll buy it off people's hands at market price or slightly higher or slightly lower, but definitely not a super attractive deal. 
And there you have it. This brings to an end our annual compilation of our listeners' favorite episodes on the Japan Real Estate Podcast and YouTube channel. We would love to know which one was your favorite, whether it's one of the top 10 we featured here today uh, or another. Let us know in the comments section of wherever you may have found this episode. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. And he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku! Yoroshiku!